last week we looked at the last of the seven letters from Jesus to the seven churches in, recorded in Revelation. And we've been walking through them. We started before Advent, took a break for the holidays. Uh, but as we looked at them, we looked at them one at a time, right? As standalone, as if they were isolated. And so we treated them in that way that wasn't quite fair to how they were received, right? What, what I mean is those letters are part of one composition. They're part of the book of Revelation that begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So whether you lived in Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea, this full revelation, the full book, was sent to you. Yes, there was a letter, some specific words addressed to your community, uh, but it was, it was to them all. And we see this clearly in chapter 1, verse 4, where John addresses this writing. If you haven't opened the scriptures, please do. He, he addresses them, verse 4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And he writes to them because Jesus commanded it. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So as we've seen going through these letters, there, there are specific messages to each church with encouragements specific to them, warnings, rebukes, and assurances about what's to come. Yet at the end of each specific letter, there's this refrain. Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches, to all of them. Let the one who can hear, hear the big picture, hear the big message. And we get this reminder that every word from God is truth. And truth has a universal quality. Truth is true over there. It's true over there. It's true back then. It's true now. It's true then. It's universal. And so each of those churches was to learn from the message to the others. Yes, Jesus had specific words, but truth teaches across the board. And the whole church throughout time is to glean, tr to glean truth from these letters to particular churches. Otherwise, we'd be done with it. Why, why would we read a letter to a church back then? It's just for them. And so we've tried to understand his message to those ancient communities in their particular situation. We want to understand what was going on with them in that ancient community. But we've drawn truth from God's word and we've applied it to ourselves. That's how you read a text like that. There's encouragement for us from what Jesus said to Smyrna. There's rebuke for us from what Jesus said to Sardis and Laodicea. And there's assurance for us from his steadying words to Philadelphia, etc. So that's what we've been doing. And as we wrap up today, 
we're done with looking at the letters, it seemed good to pull back from the particular and, and to look at what Jesus was and is communicating to the whole church through these exemplars. Go ahead and make that move and, and see. There are several phrases, there are ideas that run through each of the letters that are repeated in each one. And I want to begin by pointing out that uh, those refrains that you see in each letter are primary messages of the whole book of Revelation. They get picked up at various points. They're repeated beyond the letters. They're part of the big vision. Because they're part, they are focal points of the big picture of the revelation of Jesus. And so they need to be important for us too. They were important. They are important. Well, the first repeated phrase is connected to the description of Jesus in the vision as he reveals himself to John on the island of Patmos. He hears, John hears a great sound behind him and he turns and he sees one like a son of man. He sees Jesus. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His eyes were burning fire. And a little bit on, and from his mouth, there came a sharp two-edged sword. These are the eyes of holiness. The eyes that see with perfect clarity and purity. And these are words that cut right to the heart of things. It's the same message, those, uh, that vision is communicating the same message that Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Those eyes of fire, the eyes of flame, see everything and everyone with perfect individual clarity, not just on the outside, but he sees all the way in, all the way down to depths that you aren't even aware of in yourself. He sees all the way. He sees the spiritual. He sees the thoughts and intentions of the inward person. And so no matter how foolishly we try to hide from him, try to hide things, we can't hide anything from God. And he really wants us to know that. It's for our good to know that. So Jesus draws attention to that truth about himself in the, in the vision. And then, uh, based on that revelation of who he is and what he's like, to each and every church then, immediately after in those letters, he says the refrain, I know. I know. To five of them, he says, I know 
your works or your deeds. But he also says, I know your affliction and poverty. And to another, he says, I know where you live. I know your situation. And so since Jesus is speaking those words, we can be sure that whatever particular thing he identifies that he knows is the thing that is most crucial for that community. It's the thing they need to know he knows. Jesus is always like that. Even when he's walking in Galilee and he interacts with people, he always brings to the surface, often with a question, the thing that that person most needs to realize, most needs to think about. So that phrase, <laughs> that phrase, uh, I know, that could be heard in so many different ways, can it? I know, I know, I know, I know. Among our human relationships, so much depends on the nature of what has been hidden. How, how we hear that depends on what's been hidden and who's involved, who's knowing what. So if the kids have been kids, have you, have you had this? You've been hiding the fact you broke something? Anybody ever done that? You've been hiding the fact that you broke this precious antique and you're trying to decide, how do we distribute the blame for this? How, and before you can kind of really settle on your plan of action, one of the parents comes and says, I, I know about that. I know about that. Oh, well, that tone communicates a lot, doesn't it? How it's said. Um, the kids are probably experiencing this mixture of relief that it's out, they don't have to scheme anymore, but also fear about the consequences, what's gonna come. But the parent, you know, so much depends on how they say that. The parent can soothingly say, I know about it, I know. Or the other end, I know what you did and that you've been hiding. Uh, we're, we're, we're aware a lot rely, uh, rides on, relies on the relationship between the two. The character of the parent as well. I used to be very familiar. There was a period of time I was really familiar with these mixed feelings about relief and fear. Between age 16 and 18, I wrecked all of the vehicles in our family. Um, one of them twice. It's still driven. That little truck he drives... I wrecked that twice, totaled one of the times. <laughs> Found somebody to fix it. And at some point, you know, I'm thinking, at some point, they have to know. They have to know. I, I destroyed the vehicle. A wrecked car is serious. There are worse wreckages. Much worse. And the worse the wreck, and the worse the potential fallout, the more we're inclined to keep the knowledge hidden, right? the more we don't want it exposed, we don't want it known. So within human relationships, human relationships, that phrase, I know, or I need you to know, can be one of the most difficult to hear. 
can be a signal phrase. Jesus knew that. He knew that when he wrote this and he communicated to the churches. It is hard to think. Right here, right now, it is hard to think about the revealing of sin. We should acknowledge that. But the reality of this kind of suffering, of wounds inflicted and wounds received, this reality that we all have or will experience is precisely what Jesus is addressing in the book of Revelation. It's precisely the problem that Jesus addresses So of all the things that we experience, what we have done and what has been done to us, about it all, Jesus the Almighty God says, I know. I know about it. And the revelation of Jesus, the whole book, has this refrain because it's his knowledge about fallen creation and his knowledge about the destruction that we wreck on each other. His knowledge about what we've done to his world is what compelled him to act. I know and I will do something about it. So this one who says, I know your works, I know your deeds, is the Jesus who suffered everything. So not just in his life in Galilee and Judea, But this is Jesus who received in himself the lasting consequence of every sin. Every single sin. We can be tempted at this point to say to ourselves, Jesus suffered a lot when his flesh was ripped open and he suffocated hanging on a cross. He suffered a lot, but he doesn't know what it's like to suffer in my particular way. We can can cling to our suffering uh, and make it, because it is yours, sometimes we want to hold to it as if it cannot be known. It's a very understandable thought, but it's not quite true. All of the consequences of sin all of them, every darkness that results from every evil act, every piece of it was taken by him to be judged, was taken by him to be dealt with, to be burned up, to be consumed, to be judged. There can't be anything left over. There cannot be anything left over to rest on the redeemed Nothing can be unjudged, or the redeemed will have to answer for it. He has to take it all, every consequence. Because there is this amazing vision, Revelation 21 and 22, this amazing vision of complete freedom and joy with no more death, no mourning, No more crying, no pain, no vestige, no lingering memory, no touch of darkness. 
That awaits the ransomed of the Lord because in fact, he took each and every part of sin and suffering. So yes, he knows. He knows he took it in himself. With perfect, with perfect understanding and empathy, Jesus alone can say, I know. I know. I felt it. I felt it. And I've done something about it. So as empathetic as you and I can possibly be, we can muster all sorts of empathy. That kind of knowing is not something we can comprehend. Also not like us. The almighty Lord Jesus can say, I know in such a way that his commitment to cleanse, which he exhibited, is joined with righteous judgment of the evil that he sees. What, what this means, his eyes, those burning flames, his mouth, that, that sword. When each time he says to the churches, I know your works, I know your deeds, his church is immediately sifted. It's weighed. Nothing's hidden. He knows all about it. He rightly judges what is evil. He rightly condemns what is evil. And he has dealt with it. And so he cannot and does not waver in his commitment of love. We need to know that he knows. We need to know that he knows so that we can repent and throw ourselves into his merciful arms. If we think that we can hide it, we're not receiving his mercy. We need to know that he knows. And then we can repent. We need to know he knows so that we can also call on him to fight for us. You know what I experience. Fight for me because you know it. And that's what you do. You're the kind of God who fights to rid us of that. So we can't avoid this primary message of revelation. And why would we want to? What a blessing that Jesus sees everything. He knows and he's going to deal with it all. He's going to deal with it all. The whole rest of the book concerns how God has dealt with it. There's the, the, the symbols, the vision, so much points to his work of redemption that's been accomplished. But also how he will deal with the powers of evil. He will bring justice. An evil that's set against him and his church, he will judge. The book is sometimes called the book of judgment. In the past, especially. Because it concerns how God judges the fallen world and brings it into being as a new creation. How he restores and renews all things. And that brings us to the other consistent message in these letters. I am coming soon. To him who overcomes, I will give. That's in each of the letters. I'm coming. 
To him who overcomes, I will give. So like the phrase, I know, uh, this message of coming is going to be heard differently by many of us. It will be heard differently depending on the state of things. Remember several of Jesus' parables where he, uh, he indicates if the master, if you had known when the master was coming, you wouldn't have been having a wild party. Or if the master comes while you are wrecking his house, beating the servants, drinking yourself drunk, you will not be pleased with the outcome. I bet most of us have we've experienced something like that. Uh, mixed feelings about, I'm, I'm coming. You, uh, your house is a wreck and your friend calls and says, hey, I'm, I'm just in the neighborhood. I'm, I'm on my way over. And there's this desperate scramble to, to clean up. Is that just our house? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> you, you know. But that feels a lot differently than the call that you get when you've been waiting for the grandparents or the cousins to come. You've been waiting. You know roughly when they're arriving. Everything looks good. And you, now you're just waiting for that call. We're, we're pulling into Nampa now. Yes, yes. Go stand by the door. Wait for them outside. So how you hear, I'm coming soon, Depends on the state of things, doesn't it? Let me be frank. There can be nothing better, nothing in our wildest imaginations, nothing better than for Jesus to come and set the world right, to set it back according to his design, but even better because it's renewed. If you accept him as Lord, as your Lord, then his coming means everything you're designed for is about to be perfected. Better than your wildest possible vision of yourself. Better. When the Lord comes, I am no longer going to struggle with your opinion of me. <laughs> wow. Bring it. When the Lord comes, you're not going to have those aches and knots in your stomach. You're not going to have painful knees. You're not going to fear anymore. Anything. No more fear. Finally, we'll know ourselves as we're meant to be. We'll know ourselves, truly. And when we look at each other, we won't see sin. We won't see pretense or judgment, or whatever messed up vision we have of each other, we'll see the perfected vision. We'll see the perfected person. As God sees each of us now, so we'll see. And to see as God sees is love. To be filled with love. Look at this marvelous thing that you are. Look at this marvelous thing you are. That I only had a taste, I only had an inkling of that. Look at you now. I love you. Now here's the frank part. I said, let's be frank. If you fear the coming of Jesus, if you fear that work of perfection, 
And you have trouble saying, come, Lord Jesus. Come now. Come. It's because you have not yet understood what he's like, who he is. I may be talking to you. I don't, I don't know who I'm talking to here. But in your mind, some other, some lesser love has, has gotten so close to your face that, that it, it has obscured the massive love of God. The, the love that gives meaning to that lesser love. And so you can't see it for what it is. Or it may be that your sin is bigger in your mind than his love. That you haven't, you haven't understood, you really haven't understood the gospel. That he's already dealt with your sin. It's there in front of your face. It has no right to be there. It's been dealt with. And yet that sin fills your vision. The God who sees the eternal future, the God who sees eternity, and he sees the future as if it's present, doesn't see that sin anymore. It is not present for him, and yet it's very present for you. Because he knows you, he knows you as his. He knows you as, as you will be. Now, yes, of course, he has to talk to his people who are stuck in time. It's hard, it is hard for us. Um, we, we're, we're stuck as he's working out sanctification in us. But according to his, as he sees, that, that's all done. That's all accomplished. Yeah, that'll break your mind. Don't think about it too much. But he is gentle with our weak capacities. Uh, but he knows us as perfected. And he's coming. He's coming to bring us gifts. And to bring us into that reality of who we really are. So he's coming to give us every good thing in its right proportion. So if you fear to say, come Lord Jesus. I just want to urge you to pray. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me see you rightly according to your endless mercy. According to who you really are and according to how you see me. It's a simple prayer. Well, finally, some of you may be pondering, coming soon? Coming soon? He said that 1,900 years ago. I'm coming soon. It doesn't feel like soon. Well, Peter the apostle warned about this way of thinking. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So from God's perspective, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And he's filling up his kingdom with every tribe, nation, and tongue. Again, message of revelation. I'm coming. This is what I'm doing. This is where it's going. I'm coming soon. And that day is much sooner now than it was when Peter wrote that. He's coming soon. It is much sooner. And it will come like a thief. 
unexpectedly. But don't let surprise hinder you. It's a good surprise. It's a birthday surprise. Come. Peter was quoting his own Lord Jesus. In that same conversation that he was quoting, Jesus told the disciples how they are to wait. He's coming soon. He's going to accomplish these things. How do we wait? Actively. The big message, Matthew 24, Jesus communicates is, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of things accomplished. It's going to, for the last 1,900 years, Christians have been drugged before people who hate them. Many of them have been killed. More were killed in the last century, in the 20th century, than in the previous 1,800 combined. There's going to be a lot of suffering. But here's how you're to wait. Actively, busily, do what the Lord puts in your hands to do. Do the kingdom work in whatever sphere you have. Do it. And when he comes and he finds you busy at work, he will say, well done. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well, this wonderful message of Revelation concludes with this beautiful assurance. The Holy Spirit and the bride, the church, say, come. And let one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus is coming. And if anyone is thirsty, Thirsty for life, thirsty for meaning, the offer is open and free. Come. And this coming Lord wants to give you life. Let's pray. Lord, we do not properly appreciate the, the wonderful realities that we've touched on, we've scratched today. But I pray that you would stir in our hearts desire for you to do this healing work of restoring your creation and restoring each one of us. Let our hearts burn with the Holy Spirit that says, come, let it be. We want to say, come, let it be. Amen.